2: And welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushin Nahantaraja, and I'm joined today by Chief Football Writer of The Independent, Miguel Delaney, Senior Football Correspondent, Melissa Reddy, and Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley. There really is only one story to tackle this week. Manchester City have won their appeal to the Court of Arbitration for sport and have seen their two-year ban from the Champions League subsequently overturned. They are now free to compete in the competition next year and beyond in a huge victory for the club and a hugely disappointing defeat for UEFA and FFP. Right, so where to begin? Well, this is obviously a massive news for the game in this country as well as all over Europe. Migs, you've been covering the story from front to back as well as, you know, constantly being on issues pertaining to FFP and indeed Manchester City's situation. Can you just give us an overview of, of where we're at right now with all of this?
1: Well, first of all, I suppose, and most importantly, the playing field of the game hasn't changed. City are still in the Champions League. We don't have these kind of usual, this kind of awkward situation where the league table has this gap in it where the Champions League places now drop down to fifth. Um, It obviously changes the top four race and changes the complete outlook for Manchester City. I mean, that's how huge this was, and one of many reasons... They fought this so hard; it really had the potential to change the short to long-term future of the club. I mean, first of all, we could have had a situation. I mean, in, over the last few months, some of their players were talking in quite guarded language about you know about what their future would hold, depending on what was happening, and, and almost in some cases, leaving open the possibility that they'd leave. And, and you would, because had City been banned from the Champions League. I mean a lot of those top players, particularly those maybe in their late 20s who don't have that long left at the absolute top level would have would have looked to move uh the, the club would have struggled to replace those players because an, a huge revenue stream would have been denied denied to them uh which which and that's one thing one of the biggest things the Champions League is a revenue stream for, for so many clubs because of the, the the wealth in it is so massive and and it does distort the game in that sense. Uh so and and obviously then there were questions about the uh, about Pep Guardiola and the whole the whole project. Although the indications were that Guardiola was going to stay in no matter what. But in any case, basically City can now proceed as normal. Um, on the other side, this isn't a direct challenge to financial fair play, um, because the, the case wasn't about that. But many within UEFA felt it was a proxy war about uh financial fair play, and there are worries. About the potential complications. I mean, it, 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 at this point, we kind of get into the the meaning of today's verdict. But I mean, as 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 was put to me by one person, um, essentially this means you can you can drive a truck through the spirit of the rules, get sanctioned, get fined, and still not get banned. And it also means that UEFA have now had three cases like this: uh, Manchester City, Paris Saint Germain. And AC Milan, and they failed to fully apply their own rules. I, I, I think so. It, it it does raise questions about the viability of financial p- fair play, at the very least. Although a a more optic, or sorry, a more optimistic uh, perspective would be that. And I I know I, I think UEFA's statement was carefully worded this morning, and I think one interpretation that could be, especially to use the word specific that it, it doesn't that the, the the regulations are still preserved it, it, that, that continues as is as well uh but i think this this is going to be a situation with, with long-term ripples rather than short-term in that regard
2: critch you're obviously are here to the ground in the northwest um from the outside it seemed like city when they originally got that verdict in february were, were fuming and were kind of you know Going to bring, I suppose, an army of lawyers upon UEFA and and CAS and and get this overturned. They've obviously got what they wanted now, uh, but how confident were they coming into this hearing in terms of what they expected and um, and and yeah, just whether the punishment would be upheld or not.
3: Well, I think City's public position has always been clear, like you just said. There, you know, they've. They've always put forth quite a strident case um, in terms of their statements. If you remember back in February, when the uh, when the original punishment was announced, they said that it was prejudicial. They said that the the process, uh, UEFA's investigatory process, was uh, in some way compromised because it had been ran by UEFA. And you know uh, there was there was flaws in that argument that I think a lot of people picked up on um, because this is UEFA's competition, and ultimately they'll decide whether you abide by their rule, whether you have abided by their rules or not but um you know that was always going to be subject to an appeal against uh, at cas which they immediately said they would go for and you know that that stance it was like i say it was a very strident position to take and it was a, it was a risky one i think as well because it did leave them little room for maneuver so f- for example if today the news had been that rather than a two-year ban it was a one-year ban you know perhaps you know, in in other circumstances, you might have been able to see that as like a semi victory for City or spin that well. But given just how, you know, just how stridently been, like I say in that denial, that meant that even a one year ban would kind of jar with their position of absolute denial, and would look pretty bad on them, and reflect poorly on the club. Um, and I, I don't know. You say like, uh, how confident were they? I think I think over the last few days, there's Started to move towards this direction there was more of a feeling that they might be able to might be able to escape it but there's always that doubt there and um you know you, you just don't know what's going to come up in and and, and the process itself at kaz you know there's it's been so protective in terms of leaks because of how that undermined um the original investigation which kaz said was worrisome themselves so there's been very little indication and i think you know but. The, the only thing we've really had to go off is those very clear and strong public statements, and and City have always kind of felt that they'd they'd uh, they'd ultimately be exonerated, and you know we can <laughs> I'm sure we're going to debate on this podcast just to the extent of that exoneration, but they're they're not going to be banned for the Champions League, and and from their perspective they'll view that as ultimate victory.
1: I think Critch touches on an absolutely key point there. I mean, obviously from a purely logistical perspective, being in in the Champions League was the the main thing about this for City. But almost as crucial to that, may be, and maybe more crucial in a longer-term sense, was the absolute avoidance of any sort of guilt um, because of the reputational damage, because of everything connected. To it. I mean, had they got a one, just a one-year ban, I mean, that, that's that, that's still... You, had that happened, then we would have had so much coverage today talking about cheats, you know, maybe make, making links to, you know cases in the past, like Marseille, all that. That's what they've avoided. Now, that doesn't mean they've been completely exonerated because they've still been fined for essentially obstructing the case and have got off effectively on, on a legal technicality or a statute of limitations. Um, and, I mean, as, so, as someone in, in the legal profession uh, te- texted me this morning when it, when it came true, um, and I, I, I think I think this is a pretty big book. Bu- I mean, we've already seen... A uh, Javier Tebas's complaint, somewhat self-interest, we should say, complaints about about casts in this case. But, but as someone who would be fairly neutral in this, put it to me: How can a regulatory body credibly regulate anything when it, when it's now been found that obstructing an investigation is an offence that's effectively a slap on the wrist? Um, but but ultimately, uh, City, d- despite all this and despite the fact you couldn't say that they've been completely exonerated, they've got their. Two main objectives out of this whole process,
2: Migs. Just before I throw to Melissa, um, how much of this will actually stick in the wider context of things? You know, it, it's not too uncommon to see you know big organisations, big corporations get away with what to us looks big in terms of a fine because of all the zeros, but really for them is, is chump change. You know, this is I've seen
1: a fair bit of commentary basically that um, you know the fact they can just eat a, a ten million be- or a ten million euro fine, you know, without without even thinking. You know, sums up one of the issues in football itself. Uh, but I, I think that's actually one of the major consequences of this case. It actually preserves what is a very, very delicate balance of power in European football. So on one side we've got the old money big clubs: your your Bayern Munichs, your Manchester Uniteds, your Barcelona's, your Real Madrids. Some of it, some of whom have what a badly wanted city. Or sorry, I should say some figures are, within, within those clubs have badly wanted uh, city punished. Obviously, at the same time, they're Leveraging the threat of a, of a super league or breakaway to influence UEFA uh, in, in in wider discussions. Now, City and PSG have been involved in discussions of a super league, uh, but they have, but clubs like that are another side of this problem for UEFA, uh, another power base. And yet, of course, within this power base of st- of uh, state-run clubs, they have greater difference of all because there's not quite there's not so much difference between the, between the clubs, but difference between the states who own them. You know. PSG's Qatar and Manchester City's Abu Dhabi are on opposite sides of, uh, of an economic cold war in the Gulf. Then on the other side of it, and as a consequence of the amount of money concentrated in these top clubs, you've got UEFA's concerns about maintaining uh, some sort of competitive balance in the game, uh, which is actually proving very difficult. And we're getting to the point where unpredictability, unpredictability in football is really being eroded. So, so this is what UEFA have been trying to strike in all this and all, all these various influences. And the City case is really just kind of part of this wider tapestry. And I think, and that's what I think one of the biggest consequences of this outcome would be, that it just about for the time being preserves this balance of power so that European football can continue as is for the time being. But the fault lines that have led to this case and have led to some of these problems haven't been closed up. And it does feel like a problem has been delayed.
2: Melissa, on the topic of European football, um, it's obviously massive for City because of the Champions League next year. But how would this impact the rest of the Premier League? For example, that top four race is now exclusively a top four race and not, as we've all had to caveat in reports over the last few months, You know, potentially Champions League spots down to five.
0: Yeah, I can imagine there were quite a few clubs actually hitting refresh on Cass's website this morning to see how the trips would fall for themselves, let alone for Manchester City. If you go all the way down to seventh, where Sheffield United sit, they're just six points away from Chelsea. And so you get the feeling that a lot of clubs were hoping for City's ban just so it would give them a greater shot because there are teams in the mix who ordinarily wouldn't be there are teams in the mix like Manchester United who have put such a strong run together want to continue that momentum forward but just still find themselves outside of the top four you've got Leicester who are in the top four but have looked for some time um, since around Boxing Day like they're not going to be a a Champions League team and nothing recently has sort of changed that. So you have all these these different sort of sides who I think were really, really crossing fingers that it would go down to fifth. Now that's not the case. And one big team is going to miss out, whether that be Chelsea or Manchester United, I think from from the way things sit at the moment. But I think ultimately... The biggest losers could probably be Leicester, who for so long, I mean, at one stage in the campaign, they were considered Liverpool's closest challengers for the title, could actually end their season uh, without being in Europe altogether. Um, There's also Wolves, who have had a bit of a stumble, so are now probably thinking more along the lines of Europa League rather than Champions League. So it does change the complexion of how the, the Premier League looks this season and how English clubs will look in the Champions League next season. But also, there's a wider point to be made about how City can now you know, galvanise themselves to reclaim their title next season with the the ban hanging over them the rebuild that they need was looking quite you know ominous especially with question marks over Pep Guardiola's long term future you had some players willing to you know um go to court over bonus champions league bonuses and stuff that were in their contract that they wouldn't have been able to get if the ban was upheld so this has removed a lot of pain problems and uncertainty for Manchester City, and has effectively given them a massive boost to go again next season, try and reclaim their title.
2: Pritch, on um, Melissa's point just there, if I can bring you back in to talk about uh, not just City's rebuilding and, and City planning for next year's title, but I suppose in terms of recruitment, um, you know, from from my point of view, it doesn't seem that it would have affected, you know, Chelsea's buying power, not because of. Just because of their financial wealth, but being able to be part of a project like that would would surely entice a player even without Champions League football. Um, am I right in that assertion, or is this you know a huge factor in them being able to build up a title charge for next season? Especially, I suppose, when you consider that they've lost someone like Leroy Sané already.
3: Yeah, I think um, if look if the two year ban had been upheld, then that would have been absolutely huge, and it would have been something that fundamentally rocked the whole project uh that's been in place since two thousand and eight and has gradually you know elevated a club who come from quite modest uh quite a modest background really you know a slightly a bit a bit more provincial than than uh their neighbors manchester united certainly they they're they're one of they're at the summit of European football now and all that would have been at risk and certainly lost and you say you know it's quite an enticing project well what would that enticing project have looked like if if they were banned from the Champions League for two years? You've got to remember as well that Pep Guardiola's contract expires next summer. Um, if If the two-year ban had stood, then attempts to try and get him to renegotiate and extend that stay would have been difficult, certainly. I think this doesn't necessarily improve those chances either, because we know what Pep's like. He's a guy who doesn't stay around too long, you you know, three, four years generally, and then moves on to the next project. So whether this has an impact on that, I don't know. But certainly, and Miguel touched on it before, and Melissa there, uh, quite a number of their players are at that later age of the end scale, uh, later end of the age scale, sorry. Um, Kevin De Bruyne turned 29 just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And although, again, over the last, Maybe week or so, it's been a bit more clear that he's willing. He would have been willing to stay even if they would have been banned. Those are the types of players that you're losing. You think about Raheem Sterling. It was only a couple of uh, weeks after the original the ban was announced in February that he was given an exclusive interview to Marca just before they played Real Madrid as well with a Real Madrid shirt hanging over his shoulder. So you know, it's it would be naive to think that if that had happened, then it wouldn't have seriously affected their attempts to stay at the top of and kind of maintain the position that they've held over the last few years. In fact, I I, I genuinely think that, you know, you, wouldn't, you would also be looking at things like a potential Premier League points deduction and how would that affect their title challenge next season? And, you know, just the, the, the revenues that would be lost through Champions League football, how would they then meet FFP in the future? These are all questions that would need to be answered. And, and I think the only answer to them would have been selling players. And we're talking about a rebuild that they need to do anyway, but it would have been a rebuild at a much lower level if you like and you know we might have returned to seeing them scrapping for a top four place like they were around at the turn of the decade it'd almost be like pressing a reset button to be honest that's how serious it was and that's how serious City took it and how why they fought it so seriously as well um so it could have been cataclysmic but they've they've avoided that and you know from their point of view now they'll want to go from strength to strength
2: yeah you filled me with a little bit of hope there when you talked about them pressing a reset button wouldn't mind that as a united fan but we move on um cheers guys after the break we'll discuss what this all means for UEFA specifically and their financial fair play regulations. Welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast, where this week we're discussing Manchester City's victory at the Court of Arbitration of Sport. We've chatted about what this means for City as a whole, but what about UEFA and financial fair play as a whole? Melissa, FFP is something that's divided opinion for a long, long time. It felt like a necessary measure, but anytime it's been talked about, anytime it's you know been put on the table it's met with great resistance most notably from the biggest clubs in europe what does this verdict say about ffp as a as a principle i suppose
0: it underscores all the issues people raised when it was first introduced about its implementation where it matters most i.e against the superpowers as we've already seen uefa have now failed to properly sanction PSG, Manchester City, and AC Milan. And Arsene Wenger had been going on about this for what seemed an age. He always said that it felt like there were rules, but you could cleverly circumvent them, be successful, and nothing would happen. You'd get a slap on the wrist and I think that's ultimately what we've seen in a lot of cases, what this UEFA are right in saying that FFP have has changed the complexion of um, finances in European football, it has made some clubs more profitable, Um, it has helped a lot of them live within their means. But the big issues still persist where it's not effectively managed in the bigger clubs. And UEFA have to reconsider their processes, um, their punishments, just everything really, and how they manage to, to keep the superpowers at bay. I don't think this will mark the F of FFP in any way, but it has to force uefa into a rethink and reassessing the way they work
2: miguel um financial irregularities ffp but also the game's wider economics is something that you've you know been talking about and writing about for a long long time um but i suppose there's questions now to be asked uh of uefa's authority in the whole matter and how much power they actually have which is also something that that you've discussed as being um i suppose a bit fragile as a whole um Tony Evans wrote today that UEFA as an organisation may never recover after this decision. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment?
1: I, I wouldn't quite go as strong as Tony, but I certainly agree with with the principle. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, this is the third time they've tried to take such a case and the third time they've failed to fully punish. So it, it means that they basically, long and short of it is, they're not fully applying their own rules or at least the kind of... Um, the potential punishments for their own rules.
0: They seem to not even know their own rules considering they're trying time bod cases. Well, they're, they're going against their own limit uh, limitations.
1: To, to be fair, I think one of the arguments I've heard put forward, I think Tony actually made this point in his piece, was that uh, they thought they got it in just in time. But of course, we, we, we won't notice until we see the actual uh, cast verdict. And, I, and again, it is actually a little bit odd, it feels, that Cass haven't just produced this today that it's coming over the next few days but in in any case um, for for all the kind of there is a lot of rage in UEFA I think today but there's also a bit of relief because there's some figures that are kind of glad to see the back of this Uh, and I think that that points as opposed to some of the headaches it's caused it points to this issue we've been discussing about this delicate balance of power in, uh, in European football and I think it also reflects the kind of the delicacy of the balance in the rules that FFP is trying to kind of strike, or what, what it's trying to do, because there are two sides to FFP. There's actually the longer term one, which is about and something that there has been a goal of UEFA for some time, and predates even the idea of of super clubs, really, which was about you know financial responsibility in football and preventing so many clubs going out of business, and it has been largely successful in that. And that's something that should be commended. That has been one of the positives of FFP. Now the other side of that, and at the top end, and, so, and where, where the balance has been difficult to strike, is that, and where it becomes more political as well, is about curbing spending. Now, and again, there's two sides to that as well. Because I think while there is a definite merit to curbing the spending of of any investor do what he wants. I mean, it, it, a world without FFP basically would be a world where Paris Saint Germain and Manchester City. Are just fighting it out football indefinitely, and they're able to pay 600,000, 700,000 a week to players, and no one else can compete. And that's a lot worse than the current situation, even though the current situation has many problems. But of course, as I think as credible and as honourable as that view is, it's complicated by the fact that some of the clubs that want these, sorry, some some of the interests that want this spending curve is, is purely self interest. It's because some clubs just don't like uh, their power challenged. And, I mean, we, we've seen it with some of the complaints from Spain. We've seen it in the tension between... Uh, or, or, sorry, we've seen some of these issues in the tension between Manchester City and Bayern Munich. Um, and Um But, again, it just points to how difficult the balance is for FFP to strike um, and raise these questions about its viability going forward.
2: Critch, um just to bring you in on this conversation as well, what do you think about... UEFA as a whole. It's now the second significant defeat for them in a case against one of the new superpowers of the game, PSG. The other one, as Miggs mentioned there. Do we we need stricter regulation? I can probably answer that and say yes, but also where would that stricter regulation come from if evidently it can't come from UEFA?
3: Do we need stricter regulation? I suppose, look, FFP has, like Melissa's mentioned there and covered, it has... largely done what it set out to do i believe in that when it was brought in european clubs were losing about collectively about uh, over a billion pounds a billion euros sorry a, a year and what it's done since then is made a lot of those clubs profitable um at the same time there is this argument that it has kind of closed off certain avenues for other clubs who, whether, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the kind of football landscape in 2020 means that if you want to break into the elite, you need to be backed by um, the clubs, you know, the the kind of owners, the kind of people that own Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and you know, there, there, there may be better ways rather than tightening FFP or loosening it or whatever to, redistribute fairly you know broadcasting revenues maybe even i don't know maybe even other revenues match day commercial you know that that would be a step um, a a, a step to the left if you like in terms of european sports regulation but there are there are other methods that we could use to redistribute fairly and make it a more equitable um, a more equitable system um I think that where FFP has fallen down, but what you've got to remember as well is that whenever anybody's tried to legally challenge the framework of FFP, they've failed. So this is something that actually stands up to legal rigour and interrogation. The problem is that where these, when UEFA have lost these cases, it seems to be more down to their own kind of, I don't know, incompetence, I suppose, is what you'd say. Um, I know we were just having the debate there about uh, this, this, this issue with the time barred thing and whether whether UEFA thought that the offences were just in time. I'd like to know how they've come to that conclusion, because a lot of them were from between 2012 and 2016. Now that's, you know, the ones in 2012 certainly don't fit into any kind of closed time barred five-year limit. So um, I I just think, you know, uh, UEFA have been tripped up by their own regulations over and over again. And, it, it, it points to a problem within their wheelhouse rather than anybody else's. And the the legal framework, like I say, of, of, of FFP isn't really up for questioning. Um, and even in this case, I mean, it, City of... If you look at the CAS verdict, it says that the findings against City weren't totally established. It's not just the time bad thing, it's that they weren't totally established. So maybe there just wasn't the evidence. You know, we don't basically know the fundamental answers to these questions until the findings are released by CAS in a few days' time, as we expect, or UEFA, as Tony's outlined in his very good piece, they could potentially release the findings of their investigation. Um, so only then will we really know the full extent. But I think until then, we can only really look at the history of these kind of failures and say that the common denominator is UEFA keep tripping up over their own legislation and not enforcing it properly, and there where the problem lies, rather than with the legislation itself.
2: Well, with, with regards to that, what about lower down the pyramid? Could we now see, for example, EFL clubs that start challenging FFP in a similar manner?
3: Um, potentially, I mean, I think what we need to establish is that there's the City case refers to UEFA's version of FFP and the separate versions of FFP. This sometimes gets lost. You know, the Premier League has their own rules that are more lenient than UEFA's um the EFL has their own set of rules as well and if you're talking about lower league clubs I mean there have been a few examples over the past few years of uh championship clubs like I think QPR, QPR were uh, brought up for FFP and they managed to make a settlement of about 42 million pounds but they challenged that and so they had to pay the EFL's legal costs as part of that as well um I don't know I think like i said before the 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 framework of ffp legislation and and regulations tends to be legally sound so i don't know if this example that city have given uh, is is you know it isn't a, a case of challenging ffp the fundamental idea of ffp it's city city have won this case on kind of a procedural rule um, it seems at least that we won't know until the full findings come out, but that's how it seems. And so I don't think it necessarily inspires anybody else any who was accused of anything similar to, you know, the same confidence, especially given that a lot of these lower league clubs, I mean, they can't just risk losing like QPR did 40 million pounds to, to fight these, especially now in the current situation with the current circumstances that we have with the global pandemic and, and, you know, we were talking about Wigan last week. There's there's clubs up and down the country where that could happen any second, and so they're not necessarily going to go and fight uh, costly legal cases. Um, so I think it, I think it's unlikely, but it you know it does it does show that if you are accused of this sort of thing, there are ways of working around it. Yeah,
2: Migs. Uh, you know, we've spoken about how City can use this to, I suppose, continue rebuilding, you know, maybe even potentially get Pep to sign on uh, with the contract expiring at the end of next season. But City as a whole, do you think they'll feel emboldened by this result? And will this kind of, will we see kind of, I suppose, an extra spring in their step? They've obviously performed well on the field during Project Restart, but are we are we going to see them now you know, courageously flexing their muscles in the transfer market, but also really feeling like they can put this behind him and and go and try and reclaim that title?
1: Well, I'd expect them immediately to go out and sign a, a top centre-half, uh, maybe Koulibaly, 80-90 million we're talking about. Uh, and yeah, I think that's exactly it, because it was one thing I was thinking during all the talk about, the potential challenge to Liverpool, and putting it back up to them after the 4-0 win, in that City's plans for that were somewhat constrained by this whole case. If the ban was upheld, it was it was going to completely constrain their, um, their replenishment of this squad, whereas now... They can they can plan without any inhibitions really, uh, and so I think they go out and sign a left back and a centre half, maybe a wing forward as well, uh, and just the I mean it really is as simple as that. The outlook for them is just so much better, and it is kind of the point now where because they're they're in the Champions League play, they can they still have the attraction of that, uh, and and players coming to them and being able to afford it. I mean you'd almost consider maybe favourites for the league next
2: season. Melissa, what do you reckon about that? Um, If I can ask you about, I suppose, how Liverpool have uh, not necessarily reacted, but their thoughts during this whole process. Um, This probably wasn't the news they or any of City rivals were looking for. um, But, you know, at the same time, given the gap that they established this season with them, I don't think they were particularly relying on that to maintain or look to maintain their dominance into the... 2020 2021 season. Um, where are they at then with uh, with this whole situation?
0: I think it's obviously a disappointment for all clubs that consider themselves Manchester City's rivals because they are such a juggernaut to deal with that you know clubs would have seen it as a slight boost to them if they were denied European competition, uh, the funds that would come with that the complications for the squad, uh, the detriment to their rebuilding job, as we've said. But I think Manchester City were always going to be formidable regardless of whatever was thrown at them because of, uh, ironically, their financial might. Um, And I think it's just up to Liverpool and to Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal everyone that wants to be in the title conversation to make sure that they just reach new levels again city will undoubtedly come back in a very aggressive manner i think not just to re- to reclaim their title but you know they they're still in with a shot of winning the champions league this season so many trophies still on the table and i think this result was big for them, as I said earlier, in terms of clearing the pathway for them to, to make some massive moves on the pitch and off it. But it also will be this massive win for their us against the world mentality. They will feel galvanized, um, almost rejuvenated, I think, by this decision. Um, and I can only expect them to come out really, really strongly next season.
2: Before we go, obviously the sad news that Jack Charlton, World Cup winner of England and former Republic of Ireland manager, died over the weekend at the age of 85. Uh, he was capped 35 times for England as a central defender and played in all six matches at the 1966 World Cup. Um, Miggs, you wrote a brilliant piece on... Jack specifically on his profound effect on Irish football. Um, we've obviously seen a lot of eulogies over the weekend, but for you personally, what was you know the effect that Charlton had that you relayed in your piece, but also kind of for you personally as well?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, he's probably why I'm into football. Really, my first memories of football are Italian '90, um, and which was a period of unprecedented success for Irish football. It's, it's, it's why I'm into the game. I mean, that's the biggest impact. And I think it's one of, the, one of the interesting things about some of the discussion over Charlton this weekend, I thought. First of all, there's this... He obviously holds this place where he's a part of a very, very rare and distinguished group of players who've won a World Cup for England and just won a World Cup full stop. Beyond that, there's this kind of little, special little story that he's one of only two sets of brothers to have won World Cups together. So all that means he, he's loved in England, has this special place in England, and yet despite that, the affection from in England just couldn't come close to what to the affection from in another country, which is Ireland, where he's probably, I'd say, still by far the most influential sporting figure in the country. And there, there is, and really, he's a figure beyond sport in that way because there is a wider context to this. And it's it's something I wrote in the piece and corporal law over the over the last few days. Say, I mean, the the Ireland that Jack Charlton walked into in 1986 was it it had been a country that had only been independent for about 60 years. It had so many economic problems out of that and so much dysfunction. Where especially in the 80s, where the country only really knew economic troubles, unemployment, emigration, and a constant stream of dreadful news that dominated the headlines from the conflict in northern ireland on top of that of course and in more uh uh, trivial world of sport to say it had no real history of sporting success there were like odd five nations victory a, a smattering of um of olympic medals kind of the odd tour de france but i mean absolutely nothing to compare to to be at like Something like the World Cup, and I mean, this is the thing about the World Cup as well, especially for a country like Ireland, that really did feel kind of on the fringes at that point. Um, when when you are playing a World Cup match, you know the eyes of the world are on you, especially when you end up playing a World Cup match that is a quarter final against the hosts in Rome. And this is what Charlton brought, as well as ultimately success and happiness and a new perception of Ireland. Uh, and I, I think my a former colleague of mine at the, at the Sunday Tribune um in Ireland put it, put it back Paul Howard he used to be this the chief sports writer at the Sunday Tribune but you know he he is a bit older i mean he would have grown up you know as a kind of a teenager in the early 90s the 80s and he put it like after everything that Ireland had been through at that point Jack Charlton showed us that life didn't have to be shit and in fact it was i mean if you if you you can look at this on youtube but if you look at the scenes around around Ireland for particularly the uh, last 16 penalty shootout against against Romania uh, and, and the victory there. It, this, these aren't just scenes of a football celebration. They're scenes more akin to liberation after war. That, that's what we were looking at, essentially. And that, 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 was, that was the extent of the emotion and the feeling. Uh, and, and that's what Charlton offers. Uh, and, of course, that, that's bigger than wider debates about the football play and all the rest of it. That, that's what he was responsible for. And he holds an absolutely huge place in Irish society. And I, to, to sum it up, uh, on, the, uh, on the RTE News, which is, which is Ireland's equivalent of the BBC, on Saturday evening, uh, obviously the, the entire bulletin led with Charlton and went on for 15 minutes. And I, I, I think that's a, an, an example of the, of, the, of the status he held. And, and actually, even to add to that, it, well, I mean, obviously the last few months of lockdown... Uh, especially the first few months of lockdown, because there was no sport, we obviously did so many nostalgia pieces. And because it's it's uh, 2020 and 30 years on from Italia 90, there's been a lot of uh, uh, of pieces about that World Cup, a lot of nostalgia about that World Cup. And there was a point, I remember even thinking this recently when um there was something about about that World Cup where I think I've become inured to discussion about 1990. Oh, I can't take any more of this. And yet Charlton's death on Saturday immediately blew that away and I found myself talking about 1919 1990 more in the last 48 hours than I had for the previous few months and I'm and like I'm really getting into it because I, I really I think it really it really brought out the the sense of what it was actually all about and what, what it was about for Irish people was just happiness that, that that's what Charlton brought.
2: Well, I can't think of a better place to end this podcast. Thank you to Migs, Melissa, Mark, and for all you lot for joining us and listening in as well. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating as well to help more people find us. Be sure to follow Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media and to keep up to date with everything that's going on. And we'll see you next week.